You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dear friends, we are so sorry about the ads. They are a nightmare in every way, but with your donations, we can get rid of ads someday. Beautiful, Kevin. Mm, thanks, Rob. Bach and Harnick are smiling <laughs> so big right out. now. <laughs> Friends, yes, we are back with a new plea. Much like those adorable puppets from Avenue Q, we are asking for you to give us your money. <laughs> for those of you who have headed over to Patreon to throw a little money our way, we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Your contributions are the only budget we have for this show, and it provided us a new soundboard and better studio space, so a thank you. Thank you, and as you know, nothing is more fulfilling than talking to the legends of Broadway and hearing them share their thoughts, wisdom, and talents with all of us. However, it does cost money. And if you want to help us keep the show going, please head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search for Behind the Curtain, and you can give as little as a dollar a month, and trust me, that dollar will help us more than you will ever know. Plus, for certain monetary donations, you will get to pick your favorite thing and have advanced knowledge of our future guests so you can ask the legends your own questions. Ooh. Or you can simply leave canned goods and an original cast recording of How Now Dow Jones outside our doors if you don't want to contribute on Patreon.com. Truth. So once again, please head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest has racked up over 50 years in our business. That's by her own admission, so we're not we're not Fair. telling tales out of school. But you would not know it by looking at her or the boundless energy that comes into the room and that is on stage. And her talents have inspired countless generations to fall in love with musical theater and the power of the imagination. While she is probably best known to kiddies all over the world as the star of the wildly popular The Magic Garden, it is on stage where our guest can be found at home. After a stint as Louisa in the original Fantastics, today's guest made a name for herself in New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, appearing in countless musicals, reviews, and concert work. 
However, Broadway audiences know her as Broadway's first Sandy in Greece. All of that summer loving. So many years of summer loving. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to get jump into it. Would you, I got an eye roll from Kevin. Okay. <laughs> to tell us what it was like to work not only on Greece, but with such legends as Tom Moore, Cyril Richard, Jacques Dambois, and countless others, here is the only Sandy in our hearts, the wonderful Carol Demas. Hello, hello, hello. How Welcome. great to be here in this day of gridlock in oh New my York goodness. City. <laughs> the president is here, and everybody has to go in the direction that they had not planned on going. Exactly. We have well, been trying in many get, ways. We, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have been trying to get Carol for many months now. Carol, you live up where exactly? It, it's not that far, really. I live in what's officially called East Irvington, which is just right up near the Tappan Zee Bridge. Oh, okay. yes, of course. So, but in the woods. Oh. And so I'm, I'm a little hard to reach sometimes because while we have a big office there, my husband and I, and we, you know, we both run businesses there, we don't have cell service. Yeah. So wow. uh, like, in a way what's it's... What's that like? That's <laughs> like, not bad. Know, Okay, I'm 77 years old. I did don't without cell you. service don't you. for most of my life. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with it at all. In fact, it's it's rather nice to um, have a little more control over who reaches you and who who doesn't. Who doesn't, yeah. yeah. I mean, we get as many robocalls as anybody of else. Course. Oh, good for you. That's a good bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> they didn't spare you that. So they, they find us, no matter what. <laughs> but today, I, mu- I must say, it's a, it's, a, it's a rainy day. The president is speaking at the United Nations, and Carol still got in, got here on time, and we're, we're very grateful because it's taken a Indeed. long time to, to have this happen. Yeah. Um, we, I, was, I must tout Carol even more. We just did this concert at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below. It was a centennial celebration of the Broadhurst Theater, and Carol came back and she sang Summer Nights, and she was fantastic, and I have to tell you, it was the most wildly received number in the whole evening. The, the audience, it was like a rock concert. That's awesome. The audience went crazy. I have to ask you, having lived with Sandy for so long, do you ever get Tired of it? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, I think you do so many things um, in this career if you're lucky. Mm. I started in 1960 uh, with the Champlain Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. so it's actually been 57 years that I've been working, although not steadily. Sure. Um, but I don't. I don't get tired of being remembered as Sandy because how often do you, first of all, get a, a job as an original in a show yeah. that runs? Let's start right there. Right, right. And then if it does run, um, how long does it run? And after that, how memorable is it? Who, who remembers it? Who knew that Greece would become as iconic as it has? Yeah. And that Everybody, everybody knows it. You know, it's not the great music of Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's not Sondheim. It's not, I mean, it is, and I, that's in no way meant to be disparaging, you know, as far as Jim and Warren sure. are concerned, because they really had their finger on the pulse of the music of that time, and that was what they were doing. They were recreating it and, and sort of sending it up at the same time. Brilliantly. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes when I go back to these songs, I'm reminded of how clever they really are. A lot of them are really very clever. And and 
people, I don't think, uh, would, re would know it quite as well right. if it hadn't been for the fact that the movie was a success. You know, and that doesn't always happen either. No. Right, you know, right. A, a show is popular and a film is made and it's, and it's just never right. what it might have been. And then you have the fact that it has lots of roles for young people in it. And lots, so yeah. Every school, everywhere... Does it? Every so kids grew up with yeah. their own versions of it, and then we had two revivals mm -hmm. on Broadway who, that were different, right? Very different right. from the original, just as ours was different from the original original, which was in which Chicago, which was in Chicago, which was much edgier and darker, and yes, it was. And I happen to have heard a whole tape of it. Jim Jacobs sat in my living room with me and played. The whole show for what me. What was that like? It filthy, actually. Really? Yes. Because uh, it was all his friends, right? That he well, knew, he, or the greasers of you know. It was his Valentine know. to the kids yeah. he grew up with, and he adored them. He said he was like the duty of the gang, mm -hmm. you know, running around behind them, carrying his guitar and worshiping the ground uh, they walked on. Uh. And I asked him once, "Well, where are they now?" And he said, "Mostly they're either dead or in jail," which was. Wow. Really, a sad yeah. thing to hear. The energy of that show was spectacular. Mm -hmm. The kids, you know, yeah. the when I say it was filthy, I don't mean that so negatively. It was just, but, there were, they but used the language, language that was, was, not, was extremely yeah. rough, and the whole problem was trying to bring a lot of that grit and authenticity to the Broadway show, mm -hmm. you know, not losing that while making it more palatable you right. know, for a Broadway audience, for matinee audiences. And that took up a lot of time and discussion in the process of the, of the show during rehearsals and during previews. Huh. Did the show change drastically from the preview period to what was finally up on stage? It developed over, over the preview period quite a bit. More than we expected. But remember, this was not a show that went out of town first. Yes. Or, I mean, it Which used to be that they enough. all did. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know exactly when that stopped mm -hmm. or slowed down. Yeah. But this one, you know, went into rehearsals for, you know, a fairly standard length of time and then previews. And then all of a sudden it was Valentine's Day and the, the critics were there and we were on. <laughs> It was insane, actually. That's, really? <laughs> there were so many changes. Is this number in? Is this number out? No, it's not in this act. Now they moved it to that act. Um, we had stuff written on our hands. We had notes tacked, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. all over the place backstage. <laughs> so you made sure as you were running in to do the scene you thought you were doing that that was actually where you were going. <laughs> what oh, you were my doing. God. It was, it was pretty frantic. Um, yeah. But not in a bad way. It was. Um, it was just that you, you know, you really had to keep your wits about you. And the cast, the original cast, was so spectacular. I do want to say that we loved each other, mm. and not only in the way that casts love each other, because you become a family right. and you you rely on each other. This is your life for a period of time, and you're living with your energy placed at a time of day when most people are unwinding and going right. you know going right. to bed and and you are um, living in a in a life where you work on weekends yeah. and you work on nights and you don't see the people who are in your life normally and so you create this whole other world of the people yeah. you're working with that sometimes just sort of 
fades away like a rainbow <laughs> when it's over yeah. and sometimes becomes a part of your life forever. Greece became a part of our mm-hmm. lives forever. Mm. <laughs> did, did you audition for Greece? Just like a just it was just another audition that you were going to, or where do you uh, jump on board any other different way? Well, it was coming down the pike, you know. Yeah. And there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about it, both positive and negative. Okay. Like, who's going to make a show out of yeah. this? Right, because we take for granted that it, that was a young hip sound that Broadway had only just gotten hair, hair you know, and, and that sort of edgier and, sound was a little newer to right, Broadway. Right, and the 50s hadn't right. really been exploited. Right. Know? Yeah, that's it, yeah. The 50s that was, was yeah. still sort of an open door. Yeah. I, re- I, I remember auditioning for a couple of, a couple of times, and... I know that Louis St. Louis, our absolutely marvelous musical director, was concerned about whether or not I really had a strong chest voice because he knew that I had a coloratura soprano voice. (laughs) But I fortunately had studied with an absolute wonder and someone who became like a second parent to me, Felix Knight, who was who had a, a brilliant and interesting career of his own at the, at a time when a singer could sing anywhere they didn't mm-hmm. box you mm. into you know into a category right. Right. he sang leads at the metropolitan opera he sang on cruise ships he sang for the troops in world war 2 he sang oh. on the radio and introduced right. new pop songs he sang in clubs all over the world oh. and he said to me when hair came along um, and I had started to get calls for auditions that were different than the things I'd been singing. I had a very long three octaves of, of voice that we had been working to tie together because if there are any sopranos out there with voices like mine, they know that there are places where, where gears kind of grind a little and yeah. you're, trying, you're trying to make it all, all one yeah. voice. Yeah. But beyond that, there's this other sound. And he said, I can help you to ha- to build a chest voice that you that will be very usable for you and will teach you how to mix above it but he said people come to me and they want me women want me to teach them to really you know push that high chest voice and i tell them you can learn how to do this but there's a price mm. you will mm-hmm. not only lose some of the top but you'll lose some of the bottom as well. And he said, we've worked so hard. I really don't want that to happen to you. So he said, I'm going to teach you to sing like a tenor. Oh, interesting. He, so we listened to some exquisite operatic tenor voices yeah. where you can hear when they... It's, it's not the Broadway scream, right. you know? Like, it, it's, it's covered on the top. It's yes. protected. Yes. And... And yet it's, it's big and it's beautiful yeah. and, and, you know, and has lots of mass yeah, and lots of strength. fullness. Yeah. Yes, so he said, I'm going to teach you how to do that and how to cover the top. He said, if you want to open it now and then to create that other sound, mm. you'll be able to do it. He said, hopefully not to, you won't have to do it too often. Mm. So that kind of change, that was a game changer for me, That's that I learned how to do it. So let's back up even more. Uh, so... You had said, we had said earlier, you were Louisa in The Fantastics. Right. You were this, like you said, coloratura soprano. When did, going back even further, you were born in Brooklyn. Yes. Where did music and theater become a part of your life? Or when did, when did, when did that become a viable option? Nobody in my family had ever been in theater or a professional performer in any way. 
Do they until take you? my yeah. youngest brother um, became one of the great boy sopranos in this country. Really? <laughs> yes. really? We lived in Brooklyn, and my mother had heard about this wonderful boy choir at St. Paul's Church in Brooklyn, an Episcopal church, and she knew that this brother of mine, who was the fourth of us, uh-huh. had this incredible instrument. Huh. And she took him there, and the choir master, Charles Ennis, was a, a really special man. I think this kind of thing is, can change a lot of people's lives when you just manage to have a mentor or a teacher, you know, who is... One person can make can a difference. change everything for you. It's a theme we have on this it, podcast. Yes, it and is. It's, and it's really... Uh, that's what happened for him and, and my other brother, who is a little older than he... Uh-huh. Also sang well, but he did. But this voice of Alex's was spectacular. And by by the time he was twelve, he was singing in operas. He was, you know, well, and he his recordings are in the archives in Washington at the Smithsonian. Wow. Oh you know, to hear him sing the Bach Cantata Fifty One, which was written for a boy voice and was yeah. always sung by women, is is just. You stand there and your jaw just falls on the floor. You really can't believe what you're hearing. So there was that. My mother had a sweet, natural voice. She sang around the house. Mm -hmm. My father was a baritone, and he sang in a glee club. Oh. And in those days, men did these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He sang in a glee club, um, the King's Glee Club in Brooklyn, which was a lot of men. I mean, it was quite a strong, big group. And both his brothers... One was a dentist, one was an accountant. My father was a lawyer, and they had all grown up on the streets of Brooklyn to Greek-born parents, Mm. and they loved to sing, and they ended up doing this. And I was a little program girl for their concerts. I had a long dress that I had worn as a flower girl in a wedding, and my mother kept saying, well, I'm glad you're getting some more wear out of this dress. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. (laughs) And I would stand there giving out programs in my long dress and listening to this thunderous... Mm masculine beauty just pouring mm. off that stage mm. you know it, and i've sung in a, in some choirs and in some choruses and it is the most amazing and and god-given delight mm-hmm. to open your mouth and have a hundred voices come out True. Mm. you know what yeah. i mean yeah. yes. it's it's it you you just vibrate mm-hmm. and that's the way I felt about what I heard mm. then. So that's what was going on yeah. in my in my family. I was very small for my age, uh-huh. a very late bloomer. I always looked years younger than I was. When I got into high school, I looked about eight years old. <laughs> and in the 50s, if you didn't have breasts and hips and you were in high school, you might as well die. Uh-oh. And there were times when I was ready to. It was misery. It was just misery. So you didn't do much theater in high school? No, not at all. Not at all. I sang in choir at church. And when I got got to college at the University of Vermont, I I was an English major. And I I knew that I I had this gift of this voice. But I I had no idea what it really felt like to play a role, really. Mm Okay, I was Tiny Tim in the eighth grade because I was the only person small enough for Bob Cratchit to lift, but that's not exactly <laughs> right, right. talent. Right. <laughs> and no I just, no, so, no, but, but I had a mentor. Mm. And again, it was someone... In Vermont? Yes. Mm. At the University of Vermont, there was no theater department, but that was not a goal for me, so that was okay. 
and I loved the state, and I loved the beauty of it, and was glad to be there. Same. University, but, but not a yeah. huge one, right. with enough options so that I could maybe figure out who I was and where I wanted to go, and, and still have enough choices yeah. to, you know, to learn more about it. And Greg Falls, who was the head of what theater department there was, began the Champlain Shakespeare Festival mm-hmm. there. And he ended up as the head of the drama department at the University of Washington in Seattle oh my. and changed the face of theater in wow. Seattle. So he, obviously I was lucky. Yeah. Good and timing. he said to me in the middle of something, you can do this. And I ended up playing Julie in a production of Carousel at school. I was out there on the stage playing Julie. And in the middle of it, something hit me like I just sat on a buzzer. Mm. It, it just went through my whole body, and I thought, this is who I am. Mm. Mm. Now what do I do? Yeah. So, so what did what you did do? You do? <laughs> <laughs> well... You became Miss Vermont? <laughs> that, too. But, you know, fraternities have to put people up, so okay. they put Fair me enough. up. And I never expected to end up in Miami Beach... With you know the Miss Universe in the Miss Universe contest because well, I was we just not, had to go there. I, I mean, come I was on, Miss Universe nuts. by any stretch of the imagination. This, this beautiful I mean, I was, shy girl. I was a pretty girl. Became and I have you know and had a nice slender body and good legs. Okay. Uh, um, I mean I know my good points, but um, <laughs> I was not a statuesque, knock them dead, come down the runway, sure. everybody gasps sort well, of beauty. And I, unfortunately, being Miss Vermont, had to follow Miss Utah, and she won. <laughs> so that oh, you know, that was a real hard on. that was a real hard spot to be in. Oh my God. But it was an it was an impossible experience, which there aren't enough hours to describe. You no, know, that that went on. Do you know that my very first show in New York was Fred Ebb's first yeah, musical? Morning Sun. It was his first book musical with Paul Klein. So. Get us there. How did with Paul with Paul Klein and Fred Ebb, and so how did you go from a school teacher? You learned that's what you you did for a little bit. Yes, from Vermont. Who they, right. you went to school in Vermont, right. and then yes, you're from Brooklyn. But how in the world do you go about going about the business of mm. show? Um, right, you know, with a teaching degree. Not to say you can't, but you know, there's. Well, I fell in learn? love at the University of Vermont. Let's uh-huh. start there. Okay. So with whoa. someone to whom I did not stay married, right? But he was—he was a veteran. He was in school on the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. He seemed so mature. He was mm-hmm. probably all of twenty-four. Right. Um, <laughs> but but and you know he had red hair and um, he—he was—he was—he was a nice man. He was a good guy. He had a wonderful voice. He played Jigger in Carousel oh, in school. Okay. Oh, okay. And I always liked the bad guys. Ads. You know, okay. maybe that was the beginning of Danny and Sandy. I don't know. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, I wanted to help him through law school. So toward the end of my time at at UVM, I took some courses in early childhood education. Uh And I started working with some children at a nearby school doing creative Mm. dramatics Mm. with them. I was always had a thing for kids. Mm. On East 39th Street in Brooklyn, where I grew up, I used to sit on the stoop and the kids would all come and I would just make up stories and tell them oh stories. Oh my goodness. And then, I, then you know, everybody would have to go home and we'd continue it right. a few days later, pick up from where we left off. I had oh. no idea where these stories were going. But some of them 
yeah. went on for quite a while, and obviously <laughs> the kids liked them. Yeah. So something was, was happening that was going to mean something later, but you mm. don't always know. Mm. So I went to graduate school uh, at, um, at NYU, Graduate uh-huh. School of Education, working toward a master's in early childhood education, but knowing that what I really... My real goal was just to get enough credits to take the license test and pass and be licensed to teach because I really didn't feel like this was going to be where I wanted to end up. Oh. But when kids ask me, well, you know, about having a career, and I do speak to a lot of high school kids especially, I say, you need to find something to help sustain your career, mm. yeah. to help support your career, so that you really can have one, mm-hmm. so that you can, you can take care of yourself and study and have the money mm-hmm. to take classes and be able to live and not become totally discouraged because you're just down to your last dime. Right. That's uh, a good point. And, it, and if you can find something that's meaningful enough to you, or at least... Something that you can do, you know, that you have the energy for and the ability to do, I think it's very important. So I did teach, and I was looking for a job, and Paula had a job at PS7 in Brooklyn, which was practically under the Brooklyn Bridge, this decrepit school. And it was a double enrollment kindergarten, which meant that there were 50 kids at a time in this room with two teachers. And the teacher who was supposed to teach with her was pregnant, and you weren't allowed to teach when you were pregnant in those in the dark ages. Oh my God! So the principal was a wreck, and she said, "I've got somebody for you." And I had already taught one semester; I had a class, a kindergarten for one semester. So I went to BS seven, and Paula and I started teaching in this room full of absolutely adorable children who were terrified, who had never been to school anywhere before, didn't all speak English, didn't have anything. Nobody had ever read to them, didn't have much music in their lives, never held a pair of kitty scissors. They didn't know where to put their fingers. And it was our job to prepare them for first grade. Mm -hmm. So that's really where the Magic Garden started. This was 1962. From from my my friend from high high school. school. We met when we were 14. I mean, that kind of relationship. How how does that... That's Paula and I have been friends now for 63 years. That's beautiful. I know. Aren't I lucky? Yes. (laughs) So So that... And we were doing that. uh Uh-huh. And we we went to the Shakespeare Festival in New York. And we're waiting on the line. You think I'm... Losing you, no, or no, you're no, losing no. me. No, but I'm, I'm making, I'm making, I'm actually you. on a road here. <laughs> and we noticed that you know the people wait a long time, and we had both been to Shakespeare festivals elsewhere where they had minstrels who entertain on the grounds and yeah. stroll around singing. We thought, gee, why aren't they doing that here? It would be so nice. Would help people pass the time because it's a long wait. And that was one of the things that I had done at the Champlain Shakespeare Festival, so I could have jumped right into something like that. So being a a couple of, you know, guileless, (laughs) I don't, wonders, I don't know what we were. Young. Uh, Yes, we were, I think we were all of about 23. We wrote a letter to Joe Papp. (laughs) We wrote a letter to Joe Papp. Every time I say that, I can't believe we did it. (laughs) 
And we said, well, this is, uh, this is what we do, because we had been singing together in the kindergarten, and Paula played the guitar, and we discovered we had this lovely blend, and her brother was a baritone, and mine was a tenor, and we sort of volunteered them in this letter without telling them first. <laughs> Fortunately, when it actually came to be, they were thrilled right. to do it. We get, a, we get an, a response. Now, remember, no cell phones. Right. They called, the Shakespeare Festival called the principal's office at PS7 and oh. said that they wanted to talk to us. I mean, we practically fainted in front of all the kids, really. And I ran down, and they, and they wanted us to come and audition. And the audition came. We got there. And I have, you know, I have told people that I, I took one look at Colleen Dewhurst, who was rehearsing Cleopatra on the stage, and realized that this is... Oh, this was the real thing. Mm. I don't know if I've ever been so scared, but we got up on stage and, and we sang, and they seemed to be talking to each other. And I thought, they're so we're so awful, you know. They're just waiting for us to get through this, but actually, they were, were anything but. We got about a song and a half along, and they stood up and they said, "You're hired. Oh. Wow. When do you want to start?" <laughs> wow. So they put us on the line. And we were happy to be out there, but it was a problem because people were coming to hear us who weren't waiting. And so we were creating a jam up, you know, and the, basically the Parks Commissioner said, who are these people and what are they doing on my lawn? What, why are they singing and <laughs> right, causing right. a concert? So they put us inside with sound and with lights, and we did a half-hour concert before every show. And we started adding to what? our repertoire at the, as, del- I mean, up in, at in the, the Delacorte. Thing. Oh, my, my God. Gosh. And we did that for two seasons, and then Paula and I did it for at least two more. But everybody of, comes. We were singing like, uh, actual or Elizabethan like, oh. and even Chaucerian yeah. music, plus folk Almost songs magical, that you know? had their roots yeah. in those, that American songs that have their roots in that, oh. in that time, yeah. in that era. And the audience enjoyed it, and they were fully warmed up, and the park loved it because, I mean, the Shakespeare Festival loved it, because sometimes if the weather was iffy and they were trying to just figure out what to do, we kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, held their place for them while they figured that out. The the cast said the people were all warmed up and ready. The audience was, you know, was an audience by the time they got out there. I wish they still did that. that. I do, too. And we also, also, I was covering the Fantastics at that point. Ah, okay. at one later, later, because this was early. But yeah. later, I, when I did the Fantastics from '66 to '68, and then I covered it for them. This happened in '63, but we kept doing it. So, and then yeah. you must have been auditioning. You must have been like, oh, maybe I'll audition for a theater too. I mean, were you auditioning? Well, what this? happened was the agent started to call me from the from the, the public. Delacorte public. Yeah, and I, Shoot. you know, and I was. Um, ready to go back to teaching in the fall. My yeah. husband was in law school. Right. And suddenly there were these agents and, you know, everything scared me. I was like a really? you know, scared rabbit. Not in the, every way, but in some. Right. Obviously, not totally, or we wouldn't have right. gotten that far. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know what to, um, what to do about them. And then one of, and, and several of them wanted to send me up for the same role which was the role of Melly in Morning Sun, Fred okay. Ebb's musical. So one of them was a woman, Eva Slane, Eva White at that time. And she scared me the least. She was very nice. So I thought, all right, my husband said, I, you should go and do this. 
just to see what it's like. So mm. when the time comes when you're really serious, you'll at least have done one right. real audition yeah. and, and you'll yeah. have an idea of what to expect. Right. So I borrow my younger sister's clothes because I'm afraid I'm going to look too old because the part is 17 and I'm 23, which of course is silly now. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't wear any makeup. I had hair to my waist. I just let it go. You know, I came with my music and my song. I think I sang Till There Was You. Good. And I get to the alley, and the whole alley is full of Bridget Bardot's. <laughs> that was the look at yeah. the time. They all had long blonde ponytails and false eyelashes and gingham sundresses nipped at the waist with breasts heaving out of the top. Yeah. It was and, like high and, school all over and again. I, <laughs> and I thought, I, yeah, exactly. You know? I don't belong here uh, at all. But I, I didn't want to disappoint this agent. Right. And I felt like it's I had like to go through chance. with it. Yeah. So I did. And I got it. <laughs> mm. Did you and get it that day? Or no, was it like a apparently back? yes, but I didn't know it yet. <laughs> well, the director told me later that he said, we had been looking for this girl for seven months. And he said, you walked on stage and we grabbed each other and prayed you could sing. Oh, wow. This is is what he said. And then he said, and then you opened your mouth and we said, we got her, we found her. And uh, I mean, uh, that's probably not very typical. No. But you know, I'd I'd actually had a fair amount of experience by that time. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't, you know, I wasn't totally lost at sea. It was just the way those other girls looked, and and they all seemed so secure. And and I, I just thought, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. I think there's a listener to this day who goes through that every single time they go to an audition. Well, well, true, to this true. day, I mean, that yeah. is a feeling that everyone can relate to at some point. I, well, I still do. Yeah. And, and lots of people I know who've been yeah. in the business their entire lives still feel that way. Yeah. I mean, that, that show didn't run, and then I couldn't go back to my teaching job because uh-huh. it had been filled. And I, you know, I, I, had to, I was subbing, which is tough, yeah. all year. But things developed. I, I ended up going to the Milwaukee Rep and playing Louisa. Okay. Because you had, had you already done it no. at this point? Ah. No, I had not. I had not. And as you know, Sarah Rice and I are doing a show now at the Lori Beachman Theater Correct. called Thank You for Your Love, which is the title of one of Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt's lesser known songs. Mm-hmm. And we, have did it, we did it twice at the end of June, and we're doing it again October 1st and October 7th. Great. We'll post links for that. But um, that, The Fantastics was the first show of theirs that I ever heard. And it was because Greg Falls and his wife went to the city to see shows from the university. And they, they saw the Fantastics. They loved it. They came back with the album. They played it for oh. me. And I, I just went to pieces. Yeah. I thought this is... I, I couldn't believe how, how beautiful it was. I just really, really adored it. And they said, you're going to play this part someday. And I thought, well, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got it in Milwaukee and did it. Uh-huh. And um, 
I auditioned once for the New York production and did not get it, and the second time I did. And the stage manager told me later, he said, you know, actually, when you came in the first time, he said, you were, you were wonderful, but we actually already had somebody. We were just protecting ourselves, which is something you have to do. And sometimes that's all an audition is, sometimes yeah. that you don't so get the job. So he said, we, yeah. we only asked you to come back, you know, about a year later or whatever it was, just to check in and make sure that you were still as we right. remembered right. you, but he said it was pretty much yours. And that was when you wow. first got to know Tom Jones and, and Harvey Schmidt. That's right. And Tom and Harvey's approach to theater at that time was something that was a mission for them. Mm-hmm. And it was not what people were used to. Like commer- It wasn't just for commercial purposes it was, only. It was... Um, I'm reaching for a word here. The kind of theater where a character represents something more than what the character is. Mm-hmm. The oh, yes. boy, the girl, right. you know, the fathers. Mm-hmm. The, um, each character had a personality and, and was flesh and blood and very real, but also representative of something bigger yes. than him herself. Mm. So celebration was a real step into that kind of of theater. Yeah. You know, Orphan mm-hmm. was his name. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Angel was her name. Yeah. And Mr. Rich yeah. was his name. That's right. And Potemkin, um, the narrator, was, um, was, you know, kind of took the audience by the hand and guided them through mm-hmm. this adventure where the boy had a garden he was trying to save. Mr. Rich wanted the property. The girl had ambitions and and really loved the boy, but she didn't really totally know it. And the things that Mr. Rich dangled were she liked those things were too you know too dazzling to uh, deny. Yeah, it's a great score. But it it is a great and it has. We are singing several things from it. Oh yeah, at the beach. Oh good. Yes, we are. I have just revisited that score again, and it's right. And I got to go and play it. Out in Seattle. Oh, no kidding. Right after it closed on Broadway. Oh, it didn't goodness. have a very long run. Unfortunately. No. I went out to ACT uh-huh. in Seattle and played Angel opposite yeah. Michael Glenn Smith, who had played Orphan on yeah. Broadway, oh, came gosh. out. So I had the wonderful experience of playing it with him. Oh, yeah. That was a very good day. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, let me ask, before Greece, one of the things that we find so interesting in musical theater history is at the beginning of the 70s, there's really two big nostalgia Musicals that are bringing people back to to simpler times. One is Greece, and the other is No No Nanette, 
which you were associated with for a, a little bit. Yes, I was. And not a not a pleasant experience, but you were working with some very big legends in the oh, room, though. Yes, that was a that was another thing that everybody was after, you know. And when when I was auditioning the musical director, and here I'm really going to fish for a name, and he's a major, major force in that department, and a lovely man, and a very talented man, and the name's just not coming to me right now. I'm apologizing widely, said to me, I don't want a typical soubrette. He said, I like your soprano voice, but I like the warmth and the color of your lower voice as well. And I want to move the keys down a little bit and get a little more spunk mm. going in this. Can you? Can we do that? Which I did, and, and he liked it. And for all of the wicked stories about her, some of which I, I am told are well-founded, Seema Rubin liked me. Yes. And they cast me without the director because he was hospitalized at the time and they had to get moving. And I think, I was so excited when I got this, and I remember that I was with Tom, with Tom Jones, at um, uh, one of the theater bars, or one of the restaurants, I'm trying to remember which one. Anyway, we were there, we were having a drink, and a bite to eat, and the word got out that I had gotten it that morning, and all these waiters that you know, I kind of knew because I would see them. It was near Portfolio. You know, we would oh, go yeah. oh, afterward. Right. Like, they all started hangout, tap dancing around spot. the table to congratulate oh, me that I had gotten the net. It was so exciting. And they were so dear. And, they, and, and it just made yeah. the wonder of this experience that more major. You know, I mean, this was, this was a, a big Broadway show. Yeah. Patsy Kelly was lovely to me. Ruby Keeler was lovely to me. Um, everything was going along swimmingly. I was learning to walk on a ball, just another one of those talents that you'll never use again. Yeah. Um, but, but I did, and I would I'd go into the room where the ball lived um, during my breaks, yeah. you know, and get myself up on it using the ballet bar mm -hmm. and try to walk, and, and I was really getting it, and it was kind of fun. Yeah. And one time when I was doing it, I, I almost fell off it because I hear this voice coming out of the corner and I hadn't even noticed that anyone was there. And this, uh, this voice said, young lady, I don't want to see you doing that again without a catcher. You are going to get hurt. And it was Busby Berkeley. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sitting in the corner. He, had, he had, was taking a little nap. Right. And, um, he, and he, was, he was being very kind. He was right. Mm -hmm. He was right. Uh, we were ready to leave for Boston. I was packing my stuff. My mother brought my winter coat from Brooklyn, where I kept it, because you know, living in a little apartment, you don't have room for everything. <laughs> and she met Ruby Keeler and oh. Patsy Kelly out in the hall, which was a thrill for my yeah. mother. And they both gushed and told her how wonderful I was in the part and what a natural, and that they just thought the show was going to be wonderful. My mother left just bursting with pride. Yeah. I get home, I'm packing my bags, I get a phone call, and it's my agent, and he said, Carol, I just don't know how to tell you this, mm. but they're firing you, they're letting you go, you're being replaced, you're not going to Boston. This is like devastating. Very, mm -hmm. absolutely, totally. Even now, mm -hmm. and this is like half a century totally. ago, telling you about this, Right in the solar plexus, I, I feel it. 
this heaviness, mm. this, this thing that can happen in this business where things beyond your control just, you know, spin in some sure. direction and the next right. thing you know you're down and out. The now ugly, the show the was troubled side. and the second act was kind of a mess and um, the director decided that he really wanted someone who was more typical of, you know, the, like Susan Watson, more typical. And Susie, you know, when I were up for a lot of the same things, she was a better dancer than I. I mean, she was, was a dancer. Right. I was what we called then a singer who moves well. We still call them which, that. Yes. Which was fine, yeah. because in those days, nobody ever heard of a triple threader. Right. And there were a few people who were, and they were simply amazing. But, right. But it was, it was not, and Gwen. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was wasn't it. it wasn't something you had to aim for because they had big choruses of singers and you were a main singer and the, and we didn't wear mics. Aha. Uh -huh. We didn't wear mics. Imagine that. And you had to really have a voice, a well-developed voice that could reach the back right. of a big theater with very little help. Eight shows a week, nonetheless. Eight shows a week. Yeah. There, sometimes there'd be a few hanging way, way up high, and sometimes there'd be something in the footlights. But that's not the same as having right. a mic on your body, right. over your ear, yeah. or in your wig, yeah. where you can sing as little as this, and it's and with the magic of that guy at the console, it can sound like just anything at yeah. all. So that, I think, was one of the reasons why um, that demand, mm -hmm. the demands were different. Mm -hmm. And that knocked, that knocked me down pretty hard. Roger Somebody was playing the male lead, the, the young, you know, the juvenile lead. Mm -hmm. And I called him the next morning because I was afraid he, you know, this might be strange and upsetting for him. We had been working very closely together yeah. for weeks. Right. And I, and I said, Roger, I have to tell you, I'm not, I'm not going to be seeing you. Um, you know, they, they, they let me go. And he said, oh, I heard somebody was going to be fired, but I found out right away it wasn't me. <laughs> oh. Thanks, Roger. That's what. He, that's all he said. This business. What an yeah, interesting right. business. Oh, oh, yes, that was terrible. So for our students, you know, um, stuff, I mean, you can be on the top of the world and, and excited, and then it stops, they, and you have, no con you have no control over it. You have no control over your height in the nine audition. You have no control over this. How do you muster the courage to go, tomorrow is another day, and I'm still going to continue to be a storyteller because that's what I'm committed to do? Where did you pull from? Well, for a little while, I think, you're just sort of stunned. You know, it's like a blow to the head. Yeah. You, you have to... It'd be nice to pick yourself up, dust yeah. yourself up. Yeah. But it's not that right. easy. Yeah. It really isn't. And you do start searching your, your soul and your goals, and, and, you, and you think, is... You know, do I really have what it takes... Mm -hmm. Um, it all seemed to be going so well, and and you you know there's a lot of self doubt, right. and you and you think, well if if I was really as good in it as everybody said I was, why would this have happened? Mm -hmm. But what you don't see is what goes on behind the scenes, and you don't see the big picture, and realize that there are all kinds of 
balances going on and all kinds of problems and and for there are all kinds of reasons why especially ingenues seem to be targeted yes um, in this for this kind of situation and i thought well i'm going uh, this is who i am now i worked really hard to get here and what would I what would I do at this point? I I ha- I have to go on. If they cast me, and I competed with all those people, and I got the the part, I must have something. Right. It's right. just you know this baffling, awful experience. But if you read enough books about people's careers, you realize that hardly anyone has escaped one of these or many well, of these. You we, know, it's just. From interviewing, we, this is you must be our eighty-something person, um, and across the spectrum, producers, designers, we everyone has had that one person who helped yeah. them along the way, and a horrible, just a very unfortunate part of their career that yes. was just uh, had nothing to do with talent, yeah. just bad luck, you know, or well, bad it, it, cards. Yes, <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of what happened yeah. with the baker's wife, and I never was quite sure. So then, what after, that was about. So after, <laughs> after, after but I found I, I did get. One word in in a book Ooh. from Stephen that okay. made me feel a little a little better. Well, so let's good. talk about that because after No No Net, you 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 went on to play Sandy in Greece. So that was a nice and uh, yeah. Very quickly, is it safe to assume that if you were still with No No Net, you wouldn't really have been able to take Greece? Is that correct? I mean, they're, no, they're I think p- that was that was there was enough time in between. I think I don't remember what year it was you know it's, you have a it's a funny thing you know there are certain things that mark your life yes and yeah. you remember exactly when they were yeah and others where you you have a relative more yeah. relative yes. idea yes. yes with something that hurt that much i i think i sort of fuzzed over exactly sure yeah exactly when it was justifiably but what a blessing Greece was, though, yes. in, the, in, the, in the long run for all that stuff. But you were saying, and I'm so then, sorry. No, then I was just going to say, then Derek, uh, D- Derek, David Merrick came along with uh, Baker's Wife. And, <laughs> the Baker's and you wife. were a part of that in the beginning. I was a, yes, I was. Yeah. Um, I was cast in New York. But I also, no, I wasn't. I was cast in L.A. Oh. Um, my manager, who was also... Barry Bostwick's manager and John Travolta's manager and later Sarah's manager mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other really good people. You know, not a huge number, but yeah. um, I'd like to think he was selective. Yeah. Um, he uh, said, "You have to. We have to be bi-coastal. You have to get into television. Mm. You know, it's time." It's happening, and that's where we need to go. So after very popular in this time period for in the seventies, in the early Broadway 70s. actors, it seemed to like a natural, over. yeah, a yes. natural transition. Yeah. So a did a year in Greece and then off to, to California. Um, and while I was there, they auditioned for the Baker's Wife. Right, this new Stephen Schwartz and musical. Yes, um, and it was down to. Betty and me, I'm told. Betty Buckley. Buckley. Mm-hmm. Oh. And uh, then, so I came east where rehearsals were. I came back home. And um, we all gathered at Stephen's home. And he played through some of the songs for us. Mm. And he played Meadowlark. Oh, I bet that was exciting. And 
it just, you know, it just blew me away. And I later came to know that this almost came out of him full-blown. Mm. You know, sometimes writers labor over things, but yes. I think Stephen, part of Stephen's magic is that stuff mulls and, you know, inside him, and then the time comes when he sits down and, huh. and it, it pours out. I'm sure that, you know, he's, a, he's an exquisite craftsman, and I'm sure that there are times when, you know, he has labored a lot over certain right. things. But I, I believe he even, uh, somebody told me that, that about that song. So, and I thought, and I'm going to get to sing that. So we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed in New York, and every once in a while David Merrick would come around. And what was that like? That was fine because... He seemed very happy with what was going on, huh. and he um, and he was very encouraging to me. And you know, you, you would be on a break or something, and, and he and he said to me several times, "You're just beautiful in this. It's wonderful." Mm -hmm. So I felt, I felt good. You know, right. this time, <laughs> fool that I was. Yeah. So then we went back to Los Angeles, where um, we went into previews. And then we opened. And you were playing opposite? Topol. Uh-huh. Uh, we have questions, but yes. Topol, who um, was playing not the Tevya that they expected. Okay. From what I've been told. Now, there was no way for me to know at the time exactly right. what were their reasons for casting him. But I could tell in rehearsals that there was some effort to get him to, what, is, what am I looking for here? He was playing it like a very macho Israeli, which he is, uh -huh. which he was, you know, and, you know, attractive and virile, and, but that's confusing in this piece because, you know, why is she so drawn away from him right. to this handsome he's young man to, when she's got this guy? Right. He's supposed to be the doughy. But, but like, that question did not, you know, not occur to me at the time. Right. Now, when you look at it this way and you, and you realize I had a run of the play contract, he had a run of the play contract. One can easily assume that his run of the way play contract was a lot more expensive than mine. <laughs> so let's yes. let's think about yes. that while we're trying, you know, while you're trying to figure out if there's anything left of your broken heart no, yeah. to break again. Um, we we opened to to good reviews, really, mm. and, and mine were 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 great, and I was very very pleased. Mm -hmm. It was a too big a house for this piece, cavernous almost. Were you at the Amundsen? The um, the, the um, no, the other one. The Schubert. Uh, woman's name. Oh, that I don't know. Help, help! It, it'll come to me. Yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Oh, Dorothy the Chandler. Chandler. Oh yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. And uh, and we um, and it was the first time that I had a dressing room of my own with a couch. And a phone. Oh, yeah. And this was, you know, this was thrilling. And a phone. I love that. <laughs> For those fantastic calls in phone. case she has to go yeah. back. And, and I, was, I was going through some personal stuff sure. at the time. Like you do. I was living with Jeff Conaway and had been mm -hmm. for some years. Mm -hmm. 
and he was having his issues, and it was becoming difficult, and Kurt was luring me away, Kurt Peterson, <laughs> and it was working. Mm-hmm. And he kept Who's saying... Who's playing the playing, sexy lead, yes, we'll call right, him that's in right. Bakersfield. And he kept saying, you know, why are you hanging on to this kid with all these problems? You could have a, you know, this life with me. And I was pretty torn, which, yeah. is, which isn't a bad way to be when you're playing this part. Right. <laughs> it's kind of perfect. <laughs> right. Art imitating life, right. life imitating art. So, you know, that was going on. And... Uh, we, we, op- we opened, we were working on it. You know, it was a pretty tight company. Mm-hmm. We liked each other a lot. You know, we all saw a lot of promise in this. The music was beautiful. Everybody was giving it their all. And on opening night, and please, whoever is listening to this, I want you to understand something. Mm-hmm. I loved Jeff very much, and he was a good person and beautiful and talented and 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 a gentle soul but yes you know most people know that he had terrible terrible issues mm. with addiction on opening night i came he he left before i did and i came home to find him what appeared to be very passed out mm. But when I woke up in the morning, this was still the case. Now, that wasn't totally unusual, but it was beginning to worry me a little. But we had a rehearsal, even though we had just opened, you know, we were still working on it. And I went to rehearsal and I tried to reach him by phone and I wasn't having any luck, so I called a friend who had a key and said, Mm. would you please go in and check on him? And the friend did and he called me back and he said, you know, Jeff, he's just passed out he's fine but when I got home that night it it wasn't fine Mm. and in an ambulance we went racing to try to save him Uh, he was in a coma for I think four days and Kurt was wonderful because he was trying to keep me from being totally exhausted so he was driving me to the hospital after our show at night, where you know, a doctor had said to me, sometimes, Carol, they will come back, but it has to be for somebody. Mm. Keep talking to him, keep talking to him. Wow. And so I did. And finally he did. He did. So on a, one day I was going, uh, they told me he was, he was awake, and I was, you know, going. I was driving to the hospital to see him and and wash his hair. He said, and he, he talked to me. And he said, "I'm such a filthy mess." I said, "Well, I'll come and I'll wash your hair, and you'll feel better. And you still have to stay a few more days." And I locked myself out of the stupid house. And my car, you know, is is there in front of the house for me to drive, but I don't have <laughs> anything. No keys. No keys. No purse. And I remember this door window down the side of the house that I could get to. It was a casement window that sometimes was hard to lock, so I'm shaking it, trying to get it open, and my hand goes through. Oh, oh yeah, there's like a three-inch scar, scar on, on her wrist. wrist. Yeah, looks like I tried to kill myself, yeah. which I honestly didn't. Wow. But it was bad. 
and we were living where there were a lot of other houses and there were no cell phones and I went running down the road kicking doors because I had to hold this together right. while you I was, you know, right, was right, right, and, and it was yeah. whoosh, like, a sp- like a fountain. Oh, my gosh. So I got somebody who called an ambulance and they took me and they, and they stitched up, you know, my whole hand, all, the, all of this. I looked like Frankenstein's bride. But I got to the theater and the stage manager said, um, Carol, we have a full house. Your understudy isn't ready. Can you do this? And I said, you're damn right I can. Oh my God. Wow. So they explained to the audience that this cast that they had put on me so oh that this God. tendon wouldn't tear, you know. And I said, can you have to put it all the way around? Can you just put... So they put it like this so it didn't show you know, quite so much. Um, and we covered it as much as we could. And they said that I had had an accident, but I was fine because it was noticeable. Oh, sure. And I remember very well that night was when I really, really bonded with Meadowlark that mm. night. Oh, yeah. The, the audience just went nuts. Yeah. And when the show was over, I got down on the floor as soon as the curtain closed because, you know, my legs just, I didn't know what, where they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing that happens when yeah. you push it when you're running on adrenaline and it's and it's gone and right. it, you don't need it anymore. And Topol came over and he said the bravest thing I've ever seen. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Stephen came over and said, "Oh, thank you so much for doing this. You were just amazing tonight." And, okay, so I go home, and the next morning I I hear the phone and it's my my our manager. Uh, and he says, I'm coming over. Uh, I have to talk yeah. to you. Yeah, he comes over and he said, I, he said, I can't, couldn't explain this if I tried. But Carol, we have found out that they have Patty Lapone here in a hotel room and they're planning to replace you. So he said, do you think you could go on tonight? I said, if I could go on last night, I can go on tonight. And I, I, I went to the theater every night for, I think it was like a week or 10 days. While they just try, and equity kept saying, you can't have two people under contract, you have to make a decision. Meanwhile, you know, different cast members are knocking on my door and saying, hang in there, you know, we're listening, we're trying to see what's going on, we'll let you know, and, but just hang in there. Every night I came, prepared, and I got dressed Put on my eyelashes, you know, torture. did everything with one hand. She's crazy. And went, you know, ready to go on. And then the stage manager would come and say, I'm sorry, Miss Demas, but we feel that it would be better if your understudy played the role tonight. So one, so my manager comes one night to see how I'm doing. And it happens to be the same night that David Merrick shows up from mm-hmm. New York. And David walks into the room, and, and Bob Lamond, my manager, says, hello, Mr. Merrick. And David is looking at me, and looking at me, and I'm trying to figure out, what does this look mean? Right. And he walks out of the room, and Bob says, God only knows what they told him, but what he just saw isn't what he expected. He said, it lo- he's, he's amazed at how great you look and how ready you are. Mm. So then David comes back in again. And my manager says, Mr. Merrick, I think we should tell you that we know what you're up to. 
Carol is here. She has a run-of-the-play contract. You have to honor it. You can replace anybody for any reason that you want, as long as you honor the contract. Right, simple. But obviously, she is ready to go on. She has been ready. Yeah, and has performed it. And meanwhile, the director has been coming to my room. uh, (sighs) It's okay. He's no longer living. And I think he was really between a rock and a hard place, actually. Well, if it was a Merrick production. Yeah, he was coming to my door and saying things like, oh, Carol, you know we all love you and you're so wonderful in this part and we have such a long way to go on the road and we want you to go home and rest and take care of yourself because, you know, there's a lot ahead. What he was really trying to do was to get me to leave so that they could say that I wasn't up to playing the role and they wouldn't have to pay me. Right, right, right. So, and I you know, and, and I said, I'm look at I, I, I went on, you know, in shock practically. I'm I'm good, okay, so it hurts, but you know what I can do, and I'm ready to go on. And and he couldn't talk me into going home, and I wasn't about to do it because I was be, we were all be you know, my manager and right. I had figured this all out, oh, yeah. you know, you be ready. So David Merrick at this point goes out into the hall and starts screaming, this is my show and Carol is not fired. Talk about, you know, being bounced around until you right. think you're, you know, your insides are going to die. He, he uh, I, goodness only knows how they had described my situation or whatever. You know, I think for them, they had begun to look at the whole thing a different way especially given their issues with Topol. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they were trying to, f- they thought, oh, this is a stroke of good luck. She's injured. Now we can get rid of her, you know. No. And any, anyway, finally, they made up their minds and Equity called and said they'd made the decision. And so there I was. But the one thing that I will say is that that heartbreak gave me Meadowlark. Um which is one of the most extraordinary theater songs ever written and is often sung just as though it's a song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's a story. Mm. It's a brilliant story with so many layers of things going on at the same time that even today, when I sing it, and I thank God that I still can, I find things Mm. that I I didn't... Mm. No, yeah. that, that yeah. I, right in the middle of it, something will strike me. My God, that. Right. You All know? this time, how did yeah. I not even think of and that? I bring, yeah. and, and there's something else to bring to it, to oh, keep it going yeah. and keep it going. Yeah, that is so special. So we, there was a trial about all this. Oh. An equity trial. I didn't know that. Equity appointed me a lawyer and David Merrick, and it was me against... The abominable showman. David Merrick. Yeah. And my father knew him because my father had become quite a fine corporate lawyer and had been involved in a 20th century Fox proxy fight and had known David. So my father came to this to support me. And he was out in the hall and he ran into David. It's all just business to David. David says to my father, you must be very proud of her. And then in the afternoon, David Merrick offers me another job in another show. That's what? already running, and I can't remember which show it was now, but he did. Yes, he did. 
he is a nuts. Like, that's and crazy. So it the stories isn't, we've it heard isn't about like, him. And, well, think of it this way. He was paying me. I might as well be earning it, right? Oh, right, because he did bond under your contract. He right. had to buy you out, and then... He, no, yeah. he, you know, he was still paying me. Right. So uh, he couldn't have thought I was that terrible if he wanted to put exactly. me in another show. Yeah. And uh, so the equity lawyer took me aside and said, you know, do you want to do this? And, and my manager was there, and, and we finally decided no. Good. No. You know, you hired Carol to play this part. She is willing to continue to mm-hmm. play this part and if you, and while you continue to pay her, and you have to continue to pay her for as long as this show runs. Right. And then the equity lawyer told Merrick in the trial, Miss Demas is not a plumber. She is an actress and a fine one. Yeah. And thank you very much, Mr. Merrick, but she is... We are not interested in in this role, and you must continue to honor the contract. Wow. For a year after that, I would run into actors on the street in the theater district who wanted to shake my hand to thank me for standing up to David Good for you. Wow. But, you know, he actually wasn't such a terrible guy. (laughs) It was just business to him. Yeah. And it was show business to me. Yeah, well. And to you and to you. Right. Yeah. Rob and, Dave, and Kevin, you yeah. know, you've heard a lot of sad stories from people sitting here. And years later, maybe maybe five years ago, maybe a little more, uh, a book by Carol, and I apologize, Carol, because I can't think of your last name, and she did a beautiful job on this book, too. It's the story of um, Stephen Schwartz's career, mm-hmm. From Godspell to Wicked. Mm-hmm. Gosh, her name just doesn't come to me. But she interviewed me mm-hmm. about all of this. And in the book, there's a section where Stephen says Carol was scapegoated. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, it's not a very big sentence, but it means a lot to me. It says yes. a lot, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. On a much happier note, who is Stuart? Stuart is my... Husband of, we were married in 1983. 19, oh, wow. 34 years, okay. and we've been together for 36. Yeah. Mazel tov. Thank you. And what does Stuart do? Stuart is a very, very fine sound engineer, designer, recording engineer. His training was as a Broadway sound man. Mm-hmm. He's a member of Union. Yes. Of the Union. And... Um, he also is a. He also owned his own recording studio for some time back in the day when small studios right. thrived, yeah. right. as did his. And he's wonderful. And he has been my loving support and my rock for all of these years. And I yeah. met him because uh, he was recommended to just do the voiceover for Paula and me when we made our first Magic Garden record. And we had some visuals, and we just wanted to put a voiceover behind it to to yep. sell it on the air, you know? Yep. Wild. That's where I met it. See? Business bringing people together. I love where it. Where did this collaboration with Sarah Rice come from? Because the two of you do so much work together, it seems. But we have, um, gradually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she played Louisa 10 years after I did. And in the fa- original In Fantastic. the Fantastics at Sullivan Street. And she had to have a tonsillectomy. And this is a serious thing for any adult, but for a singer, it's very serious. I was in California doing television, and Tom Mm. and Harvey asked me to come and play it for her. 
and I describe this in our show together, that I was 36 at the time. Louisa is 16, and this is a small house. <laughs> I'm thinking, you got it. these you got guys it are nuts. But, you know, the idea of, of playing, of having Louisa yeah. one more time, you know, of being her one more time. And my dress was still hanging in the basement, and it fortunately fit. And I came home, and I played it, and Sarah would come and watch sometimes. She couldn't sing, but she would come. Mm -hmm. And we also ended up with the same manager. Tom and Harvey came to the first performance that mm -hmm. I did. But they, but they were there. Tom and Harvey were there. God bless them. So sweet. And that's when I really got to know Sarah. Yeah, that's incredible. That's lovely. Um, and we will post the dates for your Dude. upcoming concerts and any upcoming concert that you do. Please let us know. We'll make sure all our listeners are aware of it as well. Um, Paula and I have shows coming up, too. Oh, amazing. At the Emelin Theater on October 15th and at Bolton Center in Bayshore on oh. November 26th. And we are celebrating the 45th birthday of the Magic Garden. Uh, Happy With birthday. Sherlock, with the original gotta, Sherlock. Oh, we'll my clips gosh. of that, Carrie too. Antipo, yeah. who's still an amazing, amazing man. That's and fantastic. you are an amazing, amazing artist. And we wanted thank to thank you. you so much for all the wonderful years of education and talent that you've shared with us. And we cannot wait to see what comes next. I can't either. Good. <laughs> thank you, Thanks, Carol. Carol. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.